Parsi, I don't know if I like it more or less when it is a beautiful sunny day yet freezing. <laughs> because when you wake up and like you pull that blind, that sun comes in, you're like, oh, what a beautiful day, you know? And then you take that one step outside and you immediately hate your life. So is it better just to know it's going to be crappy if it's nice and dark and gloomy? Or is it more of like a slap in the face when you think it's going to be nice and then it slaps you in the face? It's funny you say that because for me, I just want to know. And so I don't care if it's gray and gloomy. And it's like, I just want to know ahead of time what I'm about to walk into. And it's funny you bring that up today because we're recording this on of all days, Valentine's Day. That's right. So it's probably going to be a pretty short intro into our guest this week. So Pope and I can get around to doing the things that, you know, guys try to do right one day of the year. Uh, But it's also such a crazy week for us. That's why we're recording this on a Monday ahead of the Friday release. We've got a couple of games. We've got Valentine's Day. We've got all kinds of things on the sked this week. So anyway, we record this on a Monday after we were in Owen Sound on Saturday. And you remember, like, I, I... vocalized as we stepped out of the Bayshore arena on Saturday night. I'm like, Oh, like it, it hit me how cold it was. I had the exact same experience when I stepped out of the house this morning to come to work. And yes, it's beautiful and sunny now, but it was a slap in the face kind of cold. And I just didn't expect it. Like yesterday wasn't unreasonably cold Super Bowl Sunday, but this morning, I don't know what happened. Well, clearly I know what happened overnight. I just didn't expect it. So I would rather know when I'm walking out in the morning and taking that first step that I'm about to be punched in the face by old man winter. Cause that's the kind of day it's been. Well, you like to know, and I'll tell you right now, you live in Ontario. You're going to get punched in the face, <laughs> but I just, I just want to brace myself Every for the punch. Day. I just want to be ready for the punch. That's all. But I know. Yeah. And it's just, it's getting, when you see a nice day like that, it starts to get in your mind a little bit, you know, like good point. we're getting closer, we're getting closer. And then it, and very quickly you find out that you're not closer. <laughs> it is still freezing cold out. Anyway. I will tell you because you brought it up and I'll just add this in quickly. A very good friend of mine happens to work at environment Canada. And he texted me not 10 minutes ago and said, I'm looking at a model that shows plus 10 plus 10 degrees in about 10 days time. So in and around the time, that we are going to a game at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium where 50% capacity can be because the next Rangers home game that will impact is February the 25th. In and around that time, if my buddy's right, he's usually pretty spot on. We could be at 10 Celsius. How is Wyerton Willie? (laughs) Dead. Oh. That's all. He's speaking to me from beyond the grave. Yeah. I thought you had a a hookup for the uh, groundhog. No, I, I wish I did. I, I that's that a whole other series of shenanigans that we should really talk to the fine folks at Owen Sound about because they are the closest to Wyerton Willie. And I don't know what's going on up there on the South Bruce, but nothing. There's a lot shady with Wyerton Willie. Don't even get me started. Um, do you know what else is going on in Owen Sound this year? Apparently, a lot of shots because <laughs> before Pavel Chion's weekend. Mac Guzda held the record this season for most saves, and it was as a member of the Owen Sound attack. And then Pavel Chayon goes up there and faces 68 shots. It's, is that and, not bananas? It's, it is absolutely bananas. Shout out to 
uh, former media relations rep with the Kitchener Rangers, Alicia Warner, who shared with us via social media on Saturday that Luke Opilka faced 70 and saved 64 in a playoff game some years back, although that went into overtime. And while Saturday did go into overtime as well in Owen Sound, the 68 shots were registered in regulation. Overtime lasted a minute and a bit, but just an absolutely nutty number. And a lot of people, because we were obviously talking about this, tweeting about this, and a lot of people were talking about the old, you know, hometown shot clock keeping. But I'll tell you what, while we can't keep track of shots and call the game, it didn't seem all that out of whack. This guy faced 68 pieces of vulcanized rubber on Saturday night. Incredible. I, I think it's a little crazy whenever I hear it, but I have to remember, remind myself that I actually watched it. <laughs> you know, um, it was a lot. And you mentioned that the game went into overtime. Only one shot on Chion in overtime. Um, but that's just so much work. Like 65 shots. And, oh, 65 saves. Or sorry, 68 yeah, shots. Yeah, don't shortchange them. <laughs> I know. I, I apologize. It's just like, that's crazy to think. And in the first 40 minutes, there were a lot of those shots that came in the first two periods. Like he was under fire for a while. Um, it was just a great, great goaltending performance. There's not much else you could say. Like, and how, probably two or three 10 bell saves I'd say within the 65 that one in the second was just crazy um I I can't believe it to be honest that it's hard for me to believe that I saw 65 saves in one game 25 shots in the first period 26 shots in the second 16 more in the third and then one in overtime for good measure totaling 68 he makes 65 saves and remember Pavel Chayon had returned to the Rangers lineup after a seven-game, roughly three-week absence, and faced 48 shots in a win over London on Friday, then 68 more. So just do all of the math. The kid made 109 saves on 116 shots against over the weekend. Bananas. Not only that, against two divisional opponents who picked up four points. That's good. Point. That's the that's the big takeaway. You know, like I, we we were talking after the game and. Chion goes out there and makes 65 saves and the Rangers lose. That is a tough one to swallow to say the very least. That's, that's one that you're feeling for the next three games probably. Um, But to have a weekend where you're coming back after missing seven games, teams lost three in a row and then to rhyme off two big wins like that. That's again, oddly enough, a feeling I think that you'll feel for about three games. I'll tell you what, uh, I've seen a handful of 50, 50 plus shot games. And, and more often than not, I'm looking at those with a skeptical eye. Like we've already said, this one felt like a legit 68. But honestly, Popper, I don't know there's going to be a time. I mean, never say never, especially in junior hockey. But honest to goodness, I, I can't remember seeing that many. Uh, yes, the overtime playoff game notwithstanding, but it just doesn't happen. And I... It'll be interesting to see if it ever happens again in our broadcast lifetime. 68 shots on goal. Crazy. It is. Uh, and as you said, I don't know if I, I, I certainly didn't face 68 shots in my junior career because I was normally pulled way before then, but <laughs> um, uh, I, it was, it was nuts, man. Yeah. Was nuts. Here's something else. That's a little bit nuts. I'm going to go 
a complete 180 on you here. But last week, uh, we had some fun at the beginning of the podcast before that uh, uh, that great interview with Brock McGillis, which I know a lot of people have enjoyed already. But we talked in the beginning of the podcast just out of curiosity, you know, threw it out there. Where are you listening from? And we're curious. I, I, really, what I want to know more than anything is if we're hitting all of the junior hockey markets, because I hope so. I'd like to think that fans from Erie to Sault Ste. Marie and from Ottawa to Windsor are finding something in here that they can latch on to, something they can enjoy, something that brings them closer to the game that they love so much. So that was really the, the motivation behind it. Can we get into every market? Are we hitting somebody in every market? So we asked for the tweets. And just so you know, at underscore Chris Pope or at Farwell underscore OHL, shoot us an email anytime farwellandpope at gmail.com and hey if you're not already subscribing to the podcast give us a subscription it'll download automatically you'll be there every week and you can give a rating and a review all that stuff anyway the first three responses from people who said oh yeah i love listening to the podcast you guys are doing a good job all from london and i'm like hang on am i Candid camera, what's going like? Where are the Kitchener people here? I thought that would have been by and large our biggest audience since that's where we're based, but London seems to love us, Popey. People said we're doing a good job. Apparently, I for, from London. This is this is the rumor, but actually it's not even a rumor because the tweets are there, they're on the interwebs, and they seem to like what we're, <laughs> what we're they must doing. have had way too many Molson Canadians if they're from London telling us that we did a good job. That's crazy. Um I- Thought it was interesting. I'm sure we are hitting the majority of the 20 markets, right? Like, I don't know if our friends in Kingston listen every week, but I'm sure they'd listen when we have some a name they recognize, you know? Sure, absolutely. And we're always taking those suggestions to farwellandpope at gmail.com. And you can let us know anytime what you're thinking about this, if there's a guest you want us to get, whatever the case may be. You mentioned a couple of... Uh, Molson Canadians, let me, or Molson products. Let me, I, I'm a little bit reluctant, but I'm just going to go ahead and blurt it out because we're friends. We're not just broadcast partners. And so, you know how the, uh, the usual running joke about traveling with a junior hockey team is, oh yeah, first of all, it's not as glamorous as you think riding that bus. And and by the way, uh, no offense intended to anyone, but the bus certainly over the course of a season tends to take on an odor of its own, let's it say. <laughs> it it, it kind of does. Popper, your car stinks. I'm sorry, but your car stinks. And I'm, I'm telling you this because I'm not sure that you are aware of said odor anymore because you're, you're in it every day, not just in the vehicle, but it, your job is as a beer rep for Molson, which is great. It serves us both very well. Thank you very much. But when I get into your car, cause you've been doing a lot of the driving this season with everything going on, it smells like stale beer and you're probably so used to it. You don't even notice it anymore. So as a friend, I'm just telling you that your car is now the beer mobile. Cause that's, it smells like stale beer all the time. I just want you to know. No, that's okay. I'm not sure if I should say thank you or be upset because I should just bring an air freshener in and hang it from your rear view mirror. Like, Except there's those a lot smell worse. <clears throat> there's a lot of things my car could smell like and I'm just glad that it just smells like stale beer. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm sure I smell like stale beer somewhere. How do you, how do you smell like stale beer going into work after the Super Bowl today? That's what I wanted to know. 
Believe it or not, no. I had a great day. The uh, the Naval Association invited me out to be a judge in a chili cook-off. And I got to tell you, I've never been inside. I've probably driven past it a thousand times in my life here in the region, but went inside for the first time, didn't even really know exactly where it was. Anyway, great group, uh, beer on tap. We had some fun with some horse racing beforehand. You could, you know, throw a loony or two down on it and had some fun doing that. Then the chili cook off, it, it, it was great. And I, I took, I was very adult all day long, had a couple of pops for sure, but uh, no, then just sit back. And honestly, the hardest part for me was staying awake for the game. A little bit on the dull side for my liking. Really? Yeah. Oh, hey, I know. I, what, hey you're, you're an old timer and we've had many a discussion, but what'd you think of the halftime show? The only complaint I have about the halftime show is that they didn't sing. Like, stop it. You're, you're a singer. You've got one job. Sing. Eminem, okay. or sorry, Marshall Mathers and Curtis Jackson did not sing. I'm sorry. I think Snoop did, but Curtis and Marshall did not sing, and they should have. Everybody should. You're a singer. Sing. That's Look all. at you dropping 50 Cent's real name. Who well, knew that Mike Farwell see? even knew 50 Cent, let alone it's- knew his real name? That's, I'm trying to up my cred because I know you just want to make fun of me because you don't think I know anything about that type, that type of music. I just yeah. want you to sing. You're a Super Bowl halftime performer. When I go to your concert, you better damn well sing. That's all. I'm with you. I, yeah. I love Eminem just as much as the next guy, I guess. Um, but I, I want to see them sing. I don't want to just see them lip sync the lyrics to a cool song because I love yeah. the songs, but sing it, you know? I still think Prince is the best halftime show. Hard to argue. With the rain coming down, it was like, I know. This is perfect. Couldn't have been any better. (laughs) But yeah, if you're you're not going to have the artists sing, then just play a mix CD or put together some little dance party for halftime show, and then you're done. Save the hassle. Completely agree. Completely agree. Um, I'm sure he's done some singing in his day. Should we get to our guest? Yeah, but before we do that, Okay. One more quick thing, because again, yes. we are recording on Monday, but we, so this oh, will right. find out if our sources are good enough or not. But as yeah. we record on Monday, we expect by the time you're listening to this on Friday, we will have heard from the Ontario Hockey League that the season has been extended by a couple of weeks so that all 58, pardon me, 68, all 68 games can be fit into the regular season schedule. And then of course, we're subsequent, subsequently backing up playoffs, et cetera. You and I have talked about this an awful lot. Like I said, when you hear this on Friday, if it hasn't happened yet, maybe our sources suck, or maybe it's still just a few days away from the league making the announcement. We expect this is the way that the league is going to go. It makes sense to me. I I worry a little bit about moving that Memorial Cup into late June now from mid-June, but you do you, get all 68 games in, bring it on. Because right now, there's no way in the time available that teams will be able to safely play for the health and safety of players, all those games. Yeah. And I, I know it's a lot of hockey and I've kind of bounced around on the idea. Cause at the end of the day, it is hockey. Like I heard someone overheard someone say, there's gotta be something illegal about that. You can't make these kids play that much hockey. These kids want to play that much hockey. <laughs> okay. First of all, second of all, they're playing a lot of hockey, but I, I get it. Why you want to stretch out the season and, um, just allow give yourself some buffer room, allow yourself some leeway. Um, I hope the announcement does come down before this episode comes out, but um, obviously that's what we're hearing is going to happen. Um, I think it's smart, and I'm sure that is what's going to happen. I'm I'm a little taken aback 
because uh, I I know you and I both didn't think that moving the uh, Memorial Cup was going to be an option. Um, but for them to actually do it, it seems like they've already had that planned out for at least a couple weeks ever since the Quebec League announced that they were coming back when they were coming back. Um, I, I think the sooner they can announce when that Memorial Cup's going to be, the better for everyone. Um, and I just, you know, as we get closer here to March 1st and restrictions being dropped and so many things going on ever changing around this country. I just hope that we can get some fans at that Memorial cup because what, what a perfect way to end this tumultuous season than a full barn in St. John. Wouldn't that be something else after going through everything we've went through to see that barn fully packed from a Memorial cup, I think would be awesome. I have a funny feeling that as restrictions are fully lifted and we're back to a hundred percent capacity inside arenas the weather is going to be getting a little bit better we're all going to be feeling a little bit better and we know for whatever strange reason the nicer the weather the more inclined we are to spend our money i I have a feeling even towards the end of the regular season which is now going to be mid-april but with playoff races happening I, i think we're going to start filling buildings again even then and i think it's going to be fan freaking tastic i'm hoping so farzy I'm hoping so. That's all I can say about it. I think it's great that the league is going to make that announcement, stretch out the schedule. They've obviously, as I, again, they've already decided to move the Memorial Cup. I just hope we can get some big number fans in there and kind of end the season, end the year off right, you know? All right. You mentioned our guest a moment ago before I took you in a different direction to talk about what we're assuming is going to happen this week and will have already happened by the time you're listening to this. But uh, he would have played, I don't know if every barn was full, but he played in a lot of them. And he's got some interesting stories from some of the barns he played in. Yes, he does. Former Sarnia Sting goaltender, former first rounder to the National Hockey League, played 11 games in the show over two years, played 187 games in the Ontario League over four years. Also uh, a member of a a Spangler Cup. Then he went overseas uh norway germany a couple other stops i think i i think i'm forgetting one but patrick deroche will let us know exactly where all the stops led him throughout his hockey career interesting pat that you now of course do broadcasts for the team that you once played for and when you played for the sarnia sting you had a guy behind the bench by the name of mark hunter let's start there because there's this hunter mystique in the ontario hockey league what was it like playing for him I had him not once, but twice, actually. Yeah. <laughs> he was there, he left, and then he came back again. Um, oh, uh, what, what to, where to start with Mark Hunter? Um, he, uh, obviously, a hockey genius. I mean, he, he's, uh, he's showed that, that he's, uh, you know, one of the brighter minds in, in the game. But um, I think going back to those days, though, I mean, the game's changed so much between, you know, the games we call now uh, on the radio and, and, and what, uh, what I – kind of grew up playing some 20 plus years ago now. So um, Mark was uh, the one thing about Mark is everything he did, he, he did to try and make everyone better. Um, you know, he grew up uh, in an old school way and, and that's kind of what he, you know, what he pushed and, and, and wanted his players to, to be like. So, um, you know, it was, uh, there, there was a lot of fun times and a lot of hard work. That's for sure. Uh, did you know back then, though, that he was a hockey genius, or were you just a typical 15-, 16-year-old kid looking at him going, shut up? No. <laughs> to, to, to me, anyways, he was, uh, you know, this farmer guy who's a big, big tough guy who, who played in the NHL. Um, obviously, 
the accolades and, and what he's, you know, what they've done with the London Knights is all kind of uh, happened after the fact. Right. So, I mean, it's, uh, it, you knew going into it that, uh, that he was going to demand a lot. And um, even back then kind of, you know, I was kind of warned, you know, he's, he can be tough on goalies. So I uh, learned that pretty quickly. Uh, but again, uh, you know, looking back on it, being, being there and in, in, in the moment, um, you know, some days you, you kind of wondered what was going on, but uh, looking back on it now, knowing what I've, you know, grown up and, and been around the game for as long as I have, um, you know, that he was, he was just trying to get the best out of everybody, um, you know, and, and he demanded that from, from, from all his players and he was trying to create that culture. The one season you played for him, and this seems like pretty, it must be a hunter thing because Dale likes to ride his goaltenders too. I'm thinking of Michael Hauser by way of example, but I think the number I saw was 56 games the one season you started in goal. Did you like that kind of workload? Did you relish that? Yeah, I mean, you didn't know any better either, right? Like, uh, I mean, again, goaltending, especially, I, I said the games come a long way, but goaltending has come leaps and bounds from where it was 20 some years ago. Just the the mental side of it. And, um, you know, and we didn't really have any of that back then. So you didn't know if you were being overworked and, and, you know, your, your body, you know, we were young kids. So body kind of felt fine each and every night. It was more so the, you know, the mental aspect of it, uh, being prepared each and every night and dealing with the ups and downs and, you know, throw on top of that, you're a young teenage kid with, with hormones and, uh, trying to navigate life as a teenager too. So, I mean, there was a lot going on and, and looking back, yeah, it was probably too many games being played back then, but that's, that's just the way it was. I mean, you didn't know any better and you just, you went out there and did it. And at the time, uh, you know, I would have said, I, I, I love to play as, as many games as possible. Obviously Hunter was a little tough on goaltenders. Do you remember a run in you had with him at all? <laughs> well, anybody who was around at the time, uh, like I said, uh, he was here twice. He, he uh, coached for, uh, again, I, I'm not sure if it was a couple of years or one year. And then he went on, he coached in the American League. I think it was the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, Toronto St. Mike's or Toronto Marley, sorry. Okay. Uh, and there. then, yeah. yeah. And then he, he came back uh, again after that. So um, the biggest run in, I mean, when I, when I left the sting, my last half, I played four years and the last half of my last year, I got traded to Kingston. So there was, uh, you know, he was the coach at that time and it kind of uh, boiled over and uh, I, let's just say we didn't see eye to eye on everything that was going on. And, um, you know, we've talked since then, obviously, but that was probably the biggest run in was kind of how that all kind of came to be and getting traded to, uh, to Mav and Kingston for the last half of the year. And, um, so yeah, there's, there was some, some running, some ups and downs, but again, looking back on it all, you know, he, he just wanted, he wanted the best out of everybody. All right. I'm clearly, there's a story to be told with Mav and Kingston, one of the legendary names in this game. But before we, before we go there, I just want to stay with this a moment longer because the Hunter mystique that we've already talked about and is well-documented in the league, everybody that follows this league knows about it, but present day. Pat, there's a there's a bit of a mystique right now with the Sarnia Sting kind of having the London Knights number, and a lot of people are scratching their heads and wondering how that's going on. Can you explain that currently? Uh, no. no, not really. <laughs> uh, I, and I, I've been doing the radio here for oh, I don't know, seven or eight years now that I've been back doing that. And uh, I was saying on air, we've won I think the last four games against them. The last three in a row at Budweiser Gardens, we beat them. And looking back over the last eight years, we haven't beat them three times total 
at Budweiser Gardens. And, and I mean, for, for a while there, we couldn't beat them at home or on the road for years. So, uh, no, I can't explain it. I mean, we've all been in the game long enough to know that sometimes some teams get, you know, the number of another team and it's just something that's in the back of their head. And for some reason, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, you just, you can't show up those nights and then you seem to seem to have their number and the sting for some reason this year do seem to have, uh, have the number of the London Knights. Uh, it's, I, I can't explain it, but it's, uh, I can't say I mind going in there and, uh, <laughs> and winning those games. Cause it's, it's certainly a, a battle and I'm sure you guys are well aware of it there in Kitchener as well. Oh yeah, sure. The irony is not lost on me that we're uh, <laughs> recording this just after another, and I do mean another because it's seven in a row for Kitchener in London. It goes back almost three calendar years as we record this. So uh, we could have used a little bit of that Sarnia magic on our last trip there. Well, we, we paid our price. Uh, I remember when I first started going back seven, eight years ago, there was a stretch where we hadn't beat London. And I, I want to say it was getting close to 20 something games like home or away. They just, we, it was years and years where we hadn't even beaten them. So um, it, it's, uh, it's definitely one of those curses that uh, again, this year, I think we just have to sit back and enjoy it while it's, while it's lasting. Mark didn't call you during that run and just say, Hey, how do you like this? This is giving me a hard time in your final year when I wasn't going to go for it. And then I ended up shipping you up to Kingston and they suck too. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a fun, uh, fun exchange. Live uh, playing out of Sar- playing out of Sarnia Arena for three and a half years, watching the new rink being built there. And uh, I think I ended up playing maybe a week and a half or two weeks in the new rink, and then they shipped me off to Kingston, the other uh, dark, dingy rink in the league. So it was uh, it was fun. No, but there, I, I do have some good stories because uh, Sean Avery was on that team too in Kingston when I was there. So I have some good Avery stories too. Well, there's you just ask yourself your own question, Pat. What uh, give us a good Sean Avery story? <laughs> Oh boy, where to start? Um, uh, it all ties in. Mav was there too, and Mav was just a great, great coach, great guy. Uh, had a lot of fun there. Um, it was my last year in the league. Every practice we had, um, Avery and I kind of had a little side bet going. If if he scored, I owed him. I forget what it was. It was like fifty cents or a dollar or something. And every time I saved him, so we kind of kept a running tally every practice. By the end of the year, he owed me like. I don't know. I was like 150 bucks or something. And uh, so we go in, Mav calls everybody in when we're, when we're done and uh, to give us our gas money and everything, our travel money, getting us back home. So we sit down and he calculates my kilometers for me to get home. And then he looks up at me, he goes, how much did Avery owe you? So (laughs) so I told him, he cuts me a check for Avery and he deducted it off of his, uh, off of his kilometer thing. And I didn't meet, uh, I didn't run into Sean for another, I don't know, three or four years probably after that we met in, uh, in the American league somewhere. And he was, uh, he remembered it, uh, but I got my money. Mav remembered. So it was good. I like that story. Cause one, it's Mav showing that he knows what's going on, right? Exactly. He understands, but he let you guys do your thing, but also that he didn't want Sean to actually have to pay you. <laughs> He's going to pay you for Sean. Like I, I, it's just the perfect Mav story. I'd love to hear some some Sean Avery, uh, Larry Mavity stories. They were together for a while, and I'm sure uh, I'm probably more so that if, if Mav was still around, hear those stories about Sean because uh, I'm sure there'd be plenty of them. Yeah, there's no <laughs> doubt that uh, Mav was an old school character in this game. So when you're heading from Sarnia to Kingston, what's going through your mind about the guy you're about to start playing for? Um. I mean, there was, 
I'd been around the league for three and a half years at that point. So I knew, I knew all about Mav and I was looking forward to it. I, you know, I, at the time I'd heard nothing but good things about Mav and uh, you know, he'd been around for so long and uh, just one of those guys that, uh, you know, he was, he was easy going and, um, but he, you know, he, he knew his stuff and, and same, same type of thing. He, you know, he, he didn't really put up with a whole lot and um, he'd put you in your place and, so he was, uh, I was looking forward to going there. It was, a, it was a fresh start. It was a, a good way to finish off kind of going to the other, the other end of the, the province. And, um, I enjoyed my time there. Another kind of funny story there is when, when Hunts traded me to Mav, um, they put in, in the deal that, uh, that Mav wasn't to trade me back to, to, to the Stings division. So, um, uh, trade deadlines approaching and uh and mav comes pulls me into his room we were on the road somewhere i don't remember where we were at he pulls me into the room and he says um plymouth really really wants you and uh i'm really thinking of doing it if if, if you're okay with it he said hunts is going to kill me because he didn't want he, we had an, an, an agreement that i wouldn't trade you back to to their division type of thing so i said well i said you do what you need to do mav i'm fine either way i'm happy here but uh if you want to do it he never ended up pulling the trigger on it but um, yeah, I was, I was very close to going back to Plymouth, which they had a really good team that year too. And, uh, I knew a couple of the guys on that team we've talked since, and they, they remembered that happening too. They, they were really hoping to, to get me back over there. So that yeah. would have been wild if that had <laughs> come down, given the agreement ahead of time. Yeah. Which you don't really see that anymore. There's, back then you, it was kind of taboo. You didn't really trade, you know, players to your own kind of area, the teams that you're going to be playing against, which. I mean, nowadays that's not really a thing, but uh, back then that was something that uh, that you know they they didn't want happening too often. So I got a weird question for you. Let's say you're you walk into a bar in Sarnia, or let's say when you were playing, you walk into a bar in Sarnia. There's Hunts having a beer. You look at the other end of the bar. There's Mav having a beer. You sit down <laughs> at a table and don't talk to either of them. Things get out of hand, and all of a sudden they start getting a little nose to nose where are you laying your money down <laughs> oh boy uh sheer strength you got to go with hunts i would think but uh you never know map might uh, be sneaky pull something out or something but uh <laughs> dirty for sure yeah yeah for sure no that's uh... <laughs> Two, two legends for sure. It was, it was, uh, it's fun to think back on those days. It's, it's quite, it was quite the ride. Were, were they similar? Sorry, Mike, were they similar in the room or were, were they different? Because in my, like on the outside looking in, you picture them both as being paint strippers, right? Just going in and losing their mind almost every intermission. No, Mav was more laid back. He was more easygoing. At least he, you know, he came across that way. Um, he, he would kind of, he would kind of go until he hit the wall and then, then he'd unleash. And then that was it again. You know, he'd be, he'd be quiet again. And um, where, where Hunts was a little bit more kind of nonstop, you know, go, go, go all the time type of thing. Along the lines of the, a goalie walks into a bar and sees two ex coaches. <laughs> question. Uh, <laughs> I like that. That's... Well, with two goalies on this podcast with me, what you know, there's, there's going to be a whole lot of a goalie walks into a bar jokes before this is over. Trust me. <laughs> But you you mentioned earlier about having played in a different era, right? Mid to late nineties, you're in the Ontario Hockey League. Do you have a goalie fight to your credit? Oh, I got a lot of goalie fights. To my credit. 
it used to be a common occurrence with the London Knights and the ice, ice house. We'd play them in exhibition every year. And uh, there wasn't an exhibition season that went by where we didn't have line brawls. And I mean, it was, it was every year. Um, my first fight, again, I was, uh, I was an underage coming in. So I was in my late birthday. So when I first got here to Sarnia, I was 15 turning 16 in October. Um, and uh, so we start the year and we get about halfway through and Mike, Mike Hansen, I don't know if you remember Mike Hansen. Um, he was on our team and he, uh, he was, you know, typical Hunts player, you know, he do anything, go through the wall for you. Uh, he was, he was one of the rookies with me and he was bugging me all year. So, when are you going to fight? When are you going to fight? So uh, we were playing against, uh, it would have been London, I guess. And uh, Ivankovic was the goalie, a big guy. He was, he was actually taller than I was. I think he was about six, five. And uh, so again, Hanson been bugging, bugging me for so long. Something happened after the whistle. There was kind of a scrum and, Ivankovic went over and started getting into the, the mix of everything. So I skated down and started in arena, started ripping my stuff off. And that was my first ever fight was against him. Um, but yeah, I kind of started to like it after that and um, had fights uh, in junior, quite a few of them. Again, most of them were in exhibition after that. I don't know that I ever fought anybody during the season in the O, um, but there was some exhibition fights. And then when I got to the American League, I had, had several fights in the American league too. fought, uh, uh, Brett Johnson. Um, uh, yeah, there's a few of them. You can look them up. I actually ended up fighting Travis Scott. He, uh, he was in Lowell. I was in Springfield. He skated down to me that time we fought. And then about two years later, we played on the same team in San Antonio. And, uh, we, we went over to his, uh, to his place one day, the whole team was over there for a barbecue or something in San Antonio. And he had back then it was cassette tape. So he, pulled this cassette tape out and it was him and I going at it. So it was kind of a funny story there. Your, your first fight you talked about against Frank. I work with Frank. What was that fight like? <laughs> Give him the dirt here. Yeah. I got uh, He doesn't know that we're talking and I didn't know that, that that happened. So now I can go to him later today, give him a call and let him know. I think I saw the clip of it. Uh, on, I don't know, probably going back about 10 years now. Somebody had it recorded. It was a bad footage and, um, I was throwing pillows, just little pillows. It was, wasn't, wasn't a whole lot going on. It was, it was, uh, again, two tall lanky guys going at it. Right. And, um, he probably got the better of me in that one, but, uh, it was, it was a pretty good fight. I think he was, he was older at the time too. I think he probably would have been 18 at the time, 19. So. I'm going to shoot him a text right now during this podcast. Hopefully yeah. he gets back to me. We'll come back. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. But you know, when we start down this path, Pat, the, and it, it comes up on this podcast a lot, when you're talking to guys that played in that different era, and yeah. I, for one, and I think I'm speaking for Popper too, kind of miss it. Like there, Obviously, there were elements that had to go from the game, but how do you feel about the game today versus the game that you played in? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, a lot of it was, you know, shenanigans type of thing that really doesn't have a place in the game. And, um I think the game today is so much more skilled than, than when we played um, uh, uh, kind of a little side note of that. I didn't realize how much the game had changed until I, I think it was my second year during the broadcasting. So we're going back about six, seven years. And um, the Cicerelli sold the team here in Sarnia to, to Hatcher and Leguan. And they were doing some cleaning out of some of the offices and they came out with a whole box full of cassette tapes and, um, Trevor Latowski was the coach at the time and Delmore was here and I was the goalie coach at the time too. So we were sitting in the office going through some of these old tapes. They were of us uh, 
kind of year one, two of, of the sting years. And um, going back, it was actually Mike Hansen on the one clip of the video, literally Sarnia arena. He, he comes barreling through and absolutely just annihilates somebody at the blue line, just crushes them and no penalty. The kids laying on the ice fans are going nuts. Hansen gets up, skates to the bench. The play goes on. I mean, nowadays that would have been kid would have been suspended for, for days. Right. So, I mean, it's just a different game. It's completely changed. I think, I think there's something missing in today's game as far as that enforcer and, and kind of policing the game that way, uh, just having that, um, you know, that threat there. And it, it, that's probably the wrong word using the threat, but I see, I know what you mean by saying, you know, there's something missing. Um, I think the game's come a long way for, for the better. Um, I don't think uh, some of the stuff we used to do and see no real place for it in the game, but, I mean, everybody gets excited when somebody drops their gloves too. Nowadays, you can't deny it when, when it does happen. Um, so I don't know. It, it's a tough one. I, I'm kind of on the fence with it. Um, I know we had, we had some times that were looking back, you know, they were fun, and, but the, there's a place, there's a time and a place for it, I guess. And I, I, I'm glad a lot of it's gotten cleaned up, um, but I, I think there's still definitely a place for it. Uh, where was the toughest place to play was it london or windsor <laughs> uh it's funny you mentioned windsor we were there last night and uh between the intermissions they had clips of the old old uh, windsor arena it was a playoff game i think between windsor and sarnia uh the year before i got there and uh that brought back some memories just seeing that bar and that old rink uh as a goalie too you'd have the glass going up and then the the the, fit, the crowd started right basically went right up to the glass so there was always a couple couple guys standing there on any home game and they'd be just ripping you and throwing stuff at you and like yelling at you the whole game and it was a, it was a special place to play that's for sure uh, it, it was probably i don't know probably my least favorite place to, i i, I like playing there and that we we usually played pretty well in that barn but it was uh it was it was intimidating going into that old rink for sure and then the ice the ice house in London was its own special, you know, you'd go there in the start of the season. And I remember some fog games in there where there was, you couldn't even see the puck. You couldn't even see past the blue line. There was so much fog in that rink. And uh, you know, they, they would play the games, even though the fog was there, you'd know guys started shooting the pucks from the other end, just because you had no idea the puck was coming at you or where it was coming from. You had to listen to the sound of somebody shooting the puck and then the puck would just slowly kind of, come through the mist and you'd pick it up after the blue line and hope to react to it. So, I mean, there's all kinds of stories like that. I was just going to say, far as he knows, I love any good Windsor arena story. It's <laughs> my favorite thing about this league, I think. You know, that makes me think of a, another thing though, kind of era to era. And, and you talked about your trade from Sarnia, the old Sarnia arena to that dingy dark place in Kingston, the old Windsor arena. And they start running through our heads here and, you know, again, I, I'm sure, especially as a broadcaster, you'd enjoy the kind of creature comforts that come with progressive auto sales now. But I, I miss those arenas with some character in the league, right? I, I remember uh, my Kingston story was we're there on a road trip and a brine line busts and the game couldn't go on. And so the Rangers and, and France were iced out, I guess. I don't know what you'd call that. Pete DeBoer made the France pay for their return visit later in the season. It was awesome. But anyway, the Yardman's gone because it's moved out of the league, etc. These buildings are all kind of the same. We need some of that character, don't we? 
For sure. I mean, I, I we didn't get to do it this year, but I love going up to the old Sudbury Arena. Um, you know, it's not not the greatest place to call a game from, or again, you know, it's cold. It's it's all of those things that make up an old arena. But there, there's definitely something there in those old rinks that uh, that it's just fun to be a part of and fun to be in. Um, I mean, you guys know more than anybody. We love coming to to the Kitchener Auditorium. I mean, that's it's not certainly not one of the old kind of smaller arenas that we're talking about, but. Uh, it's going to be a sad day when, when that rink leaves the league, the league. That's for sure. That's uh, it's my favorite rink. And, you know, it's always been never played well there, but I, uh, I, I love going there. <laughs> got some bad memories about the Kitchener odd, actually game seven. Uh, we got put out on that, uh, on that rink. I played like crap too. So that was uh, second round going back. Uh, I forget what year it was, but yeah. Yep. Is that your second year? I think it, I, we, second or third yeah it would have been might have been second it's the, it's the furthest I think the sting I've ever gone in the playoffs was game seven in that second round and we lost uh, we lost to you guys so you, we talked about uh Hunt's leaving for that year they brought in is, is it Joe Carnally Joe Canali yeah Canali yeah. <laughs> well, I have I didn't recognize his name I'm gonna be no. honest what was what was he like he came from the queue I saw no, well, no, he he oh. he coached in all three leagues. Actually, he started in the Q, went to the went to the West Coast League, and then they signed him in uh, in Sarnia. I think he lasted a year and a half, and then they they got rid of him. Um, he was he was interesting. He was intense. Yeah, he was he was a different cat for sure. What was you, you can, I don't want to get too much into his history, but you, you can look him up. He uh, okay. I think he got into some trouble in Quebec. Uh, prior to coming going out west and going to Sarnia. So I saw uh, some videos. It looked like it quite the time. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, but I'll take as a look. far as snap shows go, like between in the intermissions and stuff, trying to get people going, he had some of the better ones. He uh he would come in, he'd had this he was bald, so and he, he had this vein on the top of his head that would when he really got fired up would start just pulsating. He, we knew when we were in trouble when he'd come in that vein was just throbbing. He would he'd give it to us pretty good. I think it's wild, Pat, when you talk about that game seven loss in Kitchener 30 years ago and you say, I played like crap. Like this stuff still sticks with you, eh? For sure. Yeah. No, that uh, those are moments, you know, throughout your career that you remember, you know, it's those big games. It's, uh, you know, some, some games you you come through and you play well, other games, you know, I think for me at, at that time of my life and my career, that was a big learning moment for me. You know, I didn't play the way I wanted to, I, you know, the pressure got to me and uh, you know, it was something that I battled through and, you know, it took a long time to, to, you know, and you don't get put in those situations that often, you know, you could go years without being put in a position like that. So when you do finally get there, you know, it's, it's something that you got to try and learn and, and try and, you know, if you don't react well to it the first time, you got to try and change things up and, and, and try and figure out how to get through it the next time. You mentioned his name earlier, but Sean Avery. A lot yep. of people didn't like Sean. Was he, was he likable in that day? Or was he still a coach's nightmare? I would, again, I would love to hear Mav's version of it, but I'm sure there's some pretty pretty big stories of him being, you know, hard to hard to control. And, um, I mean, we got along well together, but he, he was a lot at times, you know, especially on the road. Sometimes you would just – kind of go somewhere else to get away from him for a bit. Cause he could be, he could be a lot to handle, you know, nonstop uh, all the time, but uh, we got along well together. And um, he, he certainly was a character back then. 
you could see where, you know, where his later years kind of came from. We've had the opportunity through this podcast, Pat, to talk to a lot of guys that, that got that call to the National Hockey League. Not a lot of them get it in the first round, 14th overall you go. Take us through your experience on draft day. Oh, um, it was in Buffalo. Um, and just leading up to it, I mean, it's just a frenzy. You just, you, you're talking to your agent, they're talking to people hearing this and that, and you're not really sure you've done, done your meetings with all the different teams that, that, you know, we're looking for a goalie that might be interested. And, you know, you're, you don't really get feedback from that. So you don't know how those meetings went. And, um, I, I do remember, I knew there was a, a good chance for Phoenix to, to go there, which is where I ended up going. Um, I think one of the other teams that was that I thought was a possibility was Vancouver. And I, I can't remember when they picked, I think they were before it might've been ninth or 10th, I think. Um, so when, when that came and went, wasn't sure, you know, the next one on, on, on tap was Phoenix that was possibly going to go with, you know, your family's there. It's, it's, it, it was, it was a special time. You know, you talk about those moments you remember, that's, certainly one of them is, is that day. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was fun. David Leguan went second overall that year. What's your relationship like with David after he took ownership of the sting, obviously? Uh, good. I mean, he's, uh, he's one of those guys I was talking about was on that Plymouth team that year. And yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, we grew up playing against each other and, um, I actually, well, I played under 17, under 18s, all that kind of stuff. But again, because I had a late birthday, um, the guys I played with were all drafted the year before, like Joe Thornton's era. So they all kind of got drafted the year before me. The guys that I got drafted with, again, I didn't, I didn't go through those, those programs with the, the U17, U18s. Um, so I didn't quite have the, you know, the, the relationship I had with them that I did with the year before the guys that went the, the 79 births. What was your first NHL game like? Uh, well, I got put in a couple games. I sat on the bench a long time as a backup. Um, it was Sean Burke was uh, when I first got there my first year. Or so um, again, I was just down in the minors in the American League in Springfield. Um, but then I think my second year they traded for Sean Burke and Sean Burke was at the end of his career at that point. So he was older. Um, and those couple years that he was there, um, I could pretty much set my calendar to when I was going to get called up. Um, I would go probably three or four weeks and then I'd get a call saying, you know, Sean's out for a week. Usually it was, you know, maintenance on a groin or something like that. Right. But, um, so he, he'd play for about three weeks, three, maybe four weeks. And then he'd, he'd be out for a week or week, two weeks, depending on what was wrong. So, uh, I'd always get a phone call. I could kind of set my, set my watch to it. I knew I'd be going up to, to sit on the bench for a couple of weeks and, and watch some hockey and, uh, you know, eat popcorn in the back room and in Phoenix, you didn't get to sit on the bench. You got to sit in the video room. So you kind of sit back there. And, um, so I did that quite a bit before I actually got into a game. Uh, my first game was in, um, uh, I got put in back to back games, Robert Esch was, was the number two at the time. Um, and he got pulled. Um, oh, I remember more of the first goal that got scored on me, which was the second night <laughs> in, in St. Louis. Um, Pronger nearly killed me. He, uh, puck comes off the bench and, uh, kind of squirted out and he, he skated from the bench and just teed one up about the top of the circle. And I just kind of skated out at it, hoping it would, 
you know, missed the net, not so much hit me. And it went by me, hit the crossbar, came back, hit me in the back and then went back in the net. So it's uh, that was the first, that was the next night. And the f- was it Minnesota? That's terrible that I can't remember. Uh, no, I don't think it was Minnesota. I want to say either Columbus. Again, it was the third period. So I played the 20 minutes the one night, and then I got put in again the next night in St. Louis. I got to play half the game there. And then uh, I got my first start was in uh, was in Montreal. Um, wow. Yeah. And that was really cool because it, um, it was in Montreal, and – uh, it was like the night after I, I got put into those two games and then we were going into Montreal and it was the CBC hockey night in Canada. The English version was on strike. Somebody, one of the, whether it was the camera ops or somebody, they were on strike. So they weren't covering the normal Saturday night game. Um, so they, they did the, uh, the, 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 the Montreal game, which is usually the French broadcast. They, they broadcast that coast to coast that night. Uh, in Montreal and that was before before shootouts or anything so it went to overtime we tied 3-3 so that was uh, that was pretty special that game the all of Penetanguishene must have been in one what was the watering hole the bar they were in come on (laughs) they were all over there was a good contingent of them that went to Montreal that night too so uh, it was uh, it was pretty exciting a lot of fun what did you think of that Kachino logo in Phoenix Again, different era, different era, right? Looking back on it, you're like, what were they thinking? Um, you know, if you've ever been down to Arizona, though, into that area, I mean, it, it suits the area very well. Like, that, that's very, you know, Arizona-esque, the, you know, the different shapes and logos and um, the coyote, the way it's set up. So, I mean, it's suit back then, but you look back on it and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's unique. That's for sure. You mentioned Springfield. And you, I, I think of this a little bit like the, uh, the Bull Durham quote about, you know, having the most career home runs in the minor leagues. It's a rather dubious honor. And I mean, no disrespect, but end up as the career starts leader for the Springfield Falcons in the American Hockey League. That's still, that's still something to hang your hat on or your goalie pads, whatever you want to say here. Uh, how, how does that make you like, what's the reception like if you ever go back to Springfield? <sighs> To be honest, I didn't even know that was still one thing that I had there. But um, Springfield was uh, was a fun place to play. We our first year, uh, we had a really good team. Actually, um, we had uh, uh, Danny Briere was on that team. Uh, Trevor Latowski was on that team. Um, there was there was a few guys. We had a really good team. We we went uh, went a couple rounds in the playoffs, I think, too. So uh, it was it was a fun place to play. I mean, it was uh, again another old an old barn um the looking back at you know the amount of hockey you played back then it was often three and three often on the weekends so you'd play three games and you know sometimes as a goalie you'd play all three games three games and two and a half nights with travel in between I remember a couple times we'd we'd play in Springfield we'd jump on a bus we'd go up to uh St. John New Brunswick get in at like three in the morning play the next night get on the bus, come home for an afternoon game in Springfield. Like just the scheduling was just ridiculous. And you I mean, you look at it now and it, I don't know, it, it was pretty, pretty crazy. But again, you didn't think anything of it at the time. You just kind of went out and played. So, but it was a fun place to play. Went from there to Lowell, played in Lowell for a while, which was just down the road. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, San Antonio. Um, yeah. Those were the three stops in the, in the American league anyways. Four years in the OHL, 
hundreds of games in the American League, and now you're back riding a bus in the OHL. What do you think? <laughs> what were you thinking? What, what do you think? Yeah. Trying not to ride the bus this much uh, this year as much as possible. Actually, I don't mind the remote games from the uh, from the from the studio. Don't have to be on the bus all the time, but. Uh, well, I think by the time I got back, you kind of forgot about, you know, the, the long bus trips. And so I was like, oh, this is fun. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of trips. I remember talking about Joe Canale. We, uh, we would play up in the Sioux and uh, we, we never played well up in the Sioux either. So it was always a terrible bus ride home and we'd never stay, you know, back then you didn't stay overnight the day before or anything like that. So, you know, you'd go up day of the game, play the game, jump on the bus, come back, you'd get back at, you know, three, four in the morning. And the one night um, you hear stories of it, you know, don't hang it up, put it on. Well, it's you know, four in the morning, our gears frozen from being under the bus and, and have been all wet from the game. We got to Sarnia arena four in the morning, we put our stuff on, went out and uh, you know, back and forth till, till everybody was dead. And uh, you know, finally got off the ice, hung our stuff up. And then we had to be in school at uh, you know, eight, eight in the morning. So yeah, there's stories like that that uh, just you shake your head at. And... Real, real about... quick, just to follow yeah. that up, Carzi, I, I'm just curious because you do hear those stories and people back in that day, it, it was just part of growing up in junior hockey. Now you'd be fired tomorrow if you did something <laughs> like that. <laughs> like, like, even, in, back in, then, though, even back then, you'd hear stories of it and you'd say, ah, no, that never really happened. That's just, you know, things that, uh, you know, that, that people talk about, but the one time, yeah, it would have been, we were up in the suit. It was Canale. I remember that for sure. We got back and he said, yeah, put it on. We're going on the ice. So, but do you think there's something to that? Or do you think that that's just old minded coaches trying to well, get something? I mean, again, kids as a whole and today's coaches, you know, they've had to evolve too. And I mean, you talk about Mark Hunter back in the day when we first got there, um, you know, his motivation style was to, you know, to push you as hard as he could and, and to expect that. And if you didn't do it, you'd be, you know, he'd, he'd let you know. Um, so there was motivation by, um, I don't want to call it fear because I mean, we weren't scared, but it was, you know, you, you didn't want to disappoint him. So you were, you were, you did what you, you wanted to do or you had to do uh, to make sure that you didn't disappoint him where, um, and I, I'm sure you talked to him too. And, and anybody who coaches today, the, the kid's, you know, it's your part psychologist, you, you know, not every kid gets motivated the same way. Um, and you have to be able to, to know the kid and, and to, to be able to uh, motivate them, uh, everybody differently. You know, a lot of kids, some kids respond to, you know, that, that heavy hand and, and making sure that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're kept in line and that sort of thing where other kids need, you know, they need their egos, you know, padded and they, they need to make sure that their confidence stays high and, um, you know, they respond better that way. So again, that's, that's the era that it was back then, you know, you had to be kind of a hard nosed coach to, to try and get the best out of everybody. And that's just, you know, there wasn't any thought of, you know, doing it differently back then. That's just the way you were as a coach. So speaking of coaches, we obviously had to know about hunts and Mav and we have some Googling to do on Canali. Good to know. We'll, do, we'll get some of those stories, but another coach along the way did jump out at me, Pat. And here's my quick story about this guy. We were on a road trip in Sudbury and I can't remember what he was doing there, but we ran into him at dinner or a pregame meal, whatever it was. And I see him, I'm like, I got to, I'm doing games with Don Cameron at the time. So I'm filling intermissions. I'm like, I got to get this guy on intermission. He said, he's going to be at the game tonight. So I invite him. He kind of gave a, a lukewarm answer. I thought, 
I swung and missed. And on the way back to the bus, the Rangers coach was chirping me for, you know, getting turned down, getting rejected. But <laughs> but Marty McSorley did show up that night in the first intermission and do an interview with me. What was he like to play for in Springfield? Uh, I wasn't there that long with him because I think that's the year I got traded to uh, to Carolina and Lowell. So um, I was only there for about a month or two. Um, but he was... Uh, Actually, Lee and I were talking about this on our Lee Cunningham on our ride home yesterday uh, about the different places and, and things like that. And uh, Marty, and, and that's when Gretzky had bought the team or bought into the team in Phoenix. So that was kind of the takeover there, um, Gretzky and McSorley. And uh, that summer prior to that, Arizona Phoenix had had all their young guys down and we were there for about a month and a half in the middle of the summer working out. And McSorley was there working out with us and so was, so was Wayne. Uh, they were working out with us and kind of getting to know everybody and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's, it's unreal to, to kind of be there and, and see Wayne and, and Marty kind of hanging out. And, you know, obviously they kind of kept to themselves a little bit more than, you know, they weren't full fledged right in there with us, but um, yeah, it was, it was, it was neat to have them and just to know that that history. Right. And um, I mean, like Marty and much like I'm sure that the hunters today, I mean, they talked and you listen just based on, you know, who they were and, um, you know, the, the, the history that, that they brought with them. Did you get to talk to Gretzky during those workouts and stuff? Uh, as much as he, you know, I, Hi, was how are you? Shy guy. I wouldn't say too much to him, but you know, you'd go stand while he was stand around while he was talking to people and, you know, be part of things. But, um, and he, he would skate with us too. Cause we did off, off ice training and then on ice training. So he would come on, he had all his, uh, his Phoenix gear. They had it all made for him. Uh, you know, the, Jofa helmet and all that kind of stuff in the Phoenix colors. And uh, he, so he'd come out and skate with us. And so that was, that was really neat. Did he snipe on you? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a matter of factly. Wasn't a crazy hard shot, but it was accurate. That's yeah. He, uh, he placed it where he wanted to. And he actually went through training camp with us that year too. That same year. Um, he uh, right from the start, he, uh, he went through training camp and uh, played in the black and white game and you probably don't remember this, but he he was going to play that year. He was coming back to make a comeback with with Phoenix. Um, but he uh, so he he wasn't telling anybody that obviously, or else it would have been kind of blown up. He was just saying, you know, I'm just oh, I'm just working out and being with the guys and stuff. But uh, he went right through training camp with us, and then the black and white game. I think it was Landon Wilson uh, and him kind of went into the corner after a puck. Landon didn't hit him, but they just kind of bumped into each other as they got to the corner and, and Wayne fell awkwardly went off the ice and uh, he never came back on again. And we found out later that, you know, he had tweaked something and kind of decided, you know what, this, this isn't going to work out, but he was good. He was planning on coming back that year. I, from I'm from what we were to, told anyways. That's wild. I'm yeah. trying to strap my head around the opportunity to be on the ice for whatever reason with Wayne, like Chris jokes all the time. Steve Eiserman is like his uh, hockey God, right? So if, if it ever came to pass that we'd run into Steve scouting a game in Michigan or whatever, Chris would probably not be able to form sentences. I'm just thinking as a hockey player to be uh, on the ice with Wayne, it's gotta be overwhelming. I got his autograph. I got one of the, the, I, I didn't ask him for it. I got one of the guys, uh, I had a, a Phoenix Jersey that I had him sign. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, it was, it was something It was special for sure. I feel like as a goalie, if I was on the ice with Wayne, I'd just move out of the net. You've earned it. Here you go. (laughs) You've earned it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was pretty special. 
Um, I was a big, I, I grew up a, a Red Wings fan too. So that was one of my highlights too. When I was with the team, I never got to play in Joe Louis Arena, but I dressed several, I backed up several times. Um, and I, I'll never forget that, especially being in Sarnia, Cicerelli's on the team. Uh, we'd get tickets to go down to the Joe all the time to watch the Red Wings play and everything like that. So when I, uh, our first game there, when I was with Phoenix, um, uh, it was pregame skate. And uh, I got out there before anybody else just kind of skated around. And that was, that was kind of a surreal moment for me too. That's, that's a moment I'll always remember is skating around the Joe, just looking around, having a place to myself and being on the ice. That was pretty cool. So cool. I think yeah. you could have, uh, you could have picked worse places for the European tour, Germany, Austria, not too bad. <laughs> what was it like jumping overseas? Uh, again, different, different style of hockey altogether. Um, a different lifestyle, uh, a lot less games. I think we played like 35, 40 games a season. Um, and then you didn't have the travel and there was no, you went over, you signed with the team. There was no call-ups or, you know, you weren't getting sent down. You weren't getting called up anywhere. So you were there, you know, you were there on the one team where North America, whether you're in the AHL East coast league or, or the NHL, you know, there's always that threat of not knowing where you're going to be, right. Whether you're getting called up or sent down or, um, or traded or, you know, so over there it was, it was, much better lifestyle that way. Um, we really enjoyed, uh, I had a couple kids when we went over, we had our third kid while we were over there. Um, we, we really ended up loving it over there. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. We played, uh, Germany, Austria, and then we were four years in Norway and Oslo. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Before that European trip, obviously you're born in Pentatanguishi and you play in Sarnia and then you go to Springfield in the American league, but your two trips up to the national league are in Phoenix, Arizona, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Were you looking around in those places in the National League, sunshine, and you're walking to the rink in shorts thinking, this is the place I need to be? Uh, that that was took some getting used to, for sure. I mean, it was it was weird. You'd, you'd come out of the rink, and, you know, you're in your shorts. You can go sit by the pool or whatever. Like, it was – it's kind of all I knew, you know, from the start coming out, getting drafted there. You get you go, and, you know, that's what you get used to. But it was uh, – yeah, it was it was kind of weird. And then uh, in, in, in North Carolina, that was, uh, I was there in the summer, the full, full summer I was there down there. And it was, uh, I'd rather be in Arizona than North Carolina. The, the, that humidity in the summertime was just killer. You couldn't go outside. It would just kill you. But it was, uh, yeah, another hot place. That, two, uh, two, two different markets, that's for sure. Yeah. Would have been to be somewhere maybe more hockey oriented, but uh, yeah, certainly an experience. That geography fascinates me from Penetanguishing to all of these different places. I feel like a dummy for missing Norway and Oslo. I'm sorry about that, but <laughs> here you are kind of back where it all started, at least in junior hockey for you. What is it about the city of Sarnia that attracted you enough that kept you there? Um, I mean, there was several things. First off, my wife's from here. So uh, that, that was kind of the first thing. And, um, you know, we, we talked about going back to Penetang after hockey was done, but um you know, the, the hockey was, was what, uh, Penetang's a small town. You're, you know, they don't have the junior hockey or anything like that there. So it was, um, it was probably, you know, a combination of, of my wife, uh, and her family being here. And then also for me, uh, I knew coming back that I wanted to do something in hockey to kind of keep my foot in it. And, uh, you know, I came back and, and the, the radio gig kind of came up, got kind of fell in my lap when I came home. So kind of got into that right away. And, um, it's it's been good it's it was easy to a lot easier to make that adjustment 
kind of getting out of hockey, uh, kind of cold turkey and kind of getting out of it. At least this way, I was still around the rink, around the guys. I was, you know, for, for a few years there, I was the goalie coach. I was in the room with everybody. And um, it, it was it certainly made it a lot easier to, to make that transition. This year, there's the great story of Dylan Grover being in the rink in London, paying for a ticket to come and watch his team, getting a, I think it was a piece of pizza or a hot dog at the intermission. Yeah, he was in line for a hot dog, yeah. Yeah, hot dog. And then uh, getting the call and being like, you need to get down to the room and get dressed. By the way, you're wearing Ben Godreau's stuff. It's not yours. You're now facing the London Knights. Good luck, kid. Um, we talked after the game in Sarnia, and I loved the story, so I'm going to bring it up again. Have you ever had an incident like that where you had to play a game or get dressed wearing someone else's gear? No, uh, the, you talk about great OHL stories. That's one of them. That's got to be uh, up there for, for him, for sure. Uh, it was a crazy story. The closest I ever came was in the NHL. Um, I was in Springfield and it wasn't somebody else's equipment, but it was all new equipment. And uh, it was that same year that I, I got my first couple of games in. I, I started in Montreal um, and then late ended up going back down to Springfield after that finished the year there and uh, they were making playoffs that year Phoenix was. So I knew I was coming, going up to Phoenix uh, as a black ace to practice and to be with the team. And so when we left Springfield, I had all this new equipment that they'd sent me. Um, and I was like, well, you know, do, do I want to, what am I going to take up with me? I might as well take the new stuff up and, and work it in while I'm there. So I took that stuff home, left my other equipment in Springfield. And I, they, there was about a two or three week stretch, but from the end of our season to the playoffs, for, for Phoenix. So they sent me home to Penetang. So I'm back home for two weeks, hadn't been on the ice, hadn't done anything. And um, it was the last couple of days of the regular season in the NHL. And I got a phone call and this was before cell phones. So they couldn't call me a cell phone. They were calling my parents house house number and, uh, and leaving voicemails on their, on their, you know, their, their old school voice thing. I was gone for most of the day. I got you know you're, you're dressing for the last game of the season in phoenix so i they'd already canceled about three flights for me i was just going to have enough time to get to toronto to get on the last flight to phoenix which got in at like two in the morning in phoenix uh and uh, so I, I rushed down there of course i've got all my brand new equipment with me that i've never had on before and i get in i'm at the turnbuckle uh waiting for my my luggage and my equipment to come out in phoenix and my um and uh the, the guy shows up to pick me up and he says oh by the way um Benny Allaire, the goalie coach, wanted wanted me to let you know that you're starting tomorrow. And it's an afternoon game. So there's no morning skate. So it's two in the morning. Uh, I get to the hotel, get some sleep, go to the rink for like 1130 with all my new gear. So I'm, I'm standing there uh, playing the last game of the season and I've got all this new equipment on. And I, I wasn't, some goalies like wearing new gear. I couldn't, I hated it. I, it was awful. Could barely move. I had new, it was new pads, new gloves, uh, and a new chest protector that I was wearing. So I felt like a robot out there. We ended up winning, I think it was 6-5. Um, <laughs> it didn't have a great game, but I think we came back in the third to win it. But uh, that's one I'll definitely remember. That's the closest I've ever been to kind of wearing somebody else's equipment. I could never wear new gear. It would drive me crazy. Oh, it was, it was awful. Well, yeah. since you brought it up, and this is where I just – remove myself from the podcast and take a break because Chris loves geeking out over this stuff. <laughs> but as a couple of former goalies here, how much better would you have been Pat, if you had today's equipment when you were playing? Uh, I, I don't think I would have been any better. Um, I mean, the equipment wasn't, 
it's certainly evolved since then, but I, it's, it's not, I look back at the stuff I wore my first year or two in junior hockey and it was pretty rough compared to what today's stuff is. But but the stuff I wore in pro, you know, I was wearing the Vaughn stuff towards the end. I mean, it, it's pretty similar to the stuff they're wearing today. Uh, not a whole lot's changed. I'm sure it's gotten lighter and, you know, different advancements here and there. But, um, I mean, the style of play is, has, has evolved as well. So, um, yeah, you look back at the, the gear that uh, that we wore back then 20-some years ago when it was in the OHL. It was, it's come a long way since then. And, again, I don't think you – would be that much different as far as, you know, would I, would we have been better? I'm sure, you know, slightly, but uh, yeah, the, that's just excuses. It's what you're used to. It's what you, you know, there's still a lot. Uh, again, for me, goaltending is, is I would say probably 80% mental, 20%, you know, making the save. Um, and I think that's where goaltending, I think has evolved the most over the last 10 years is, is they, you know, the importance of, of having a sports psychologist or somebody making sure that you're, you know, if you're not confident in yourself and, and if you, if you don't think you can stop that puck or if you're second guessing yourself, I mean, you've already lost the game. So it's so important to, to have that confidence and um, that belief in yourself and to be able to, you know, keep that each and every game throughout the season. That, that's the tough part is when you get worn down and um, it, it makes it a lot tougher. So there's, there's definitely a lot more support for goaltenders today. And I think that's, that's a huge step in the right direction for, for our position and our, our sport. As far as the end, I'm sure Patty, you can attest to this. I think the biggest difference would be less bruises and less stingers and <laughs> yeah. to, to, to the, uh, the 4am put it on, don't hang it up skate gets a lot easier with the new gear as opposed to the frozen coho pads that just came off a four hour bus trip that were basically just blocks of ice on Patty's legs skating around the rink. Yeah. You got a point there. Definitely. Uh, you're more protected that way. I, I will say too, though, and, and just from before I stopped playing the new gear, I mean, it doesn't last like the old stuff too. I mean, you know, you go a couple months with that stuff in, in the, you know, how they, how they use it nowadays on the ice all the time and everything. I mean, it's, it's done. You need, you need new stuff. It, it's especially the gloves. They, uh, they don't last very long at all. I remember running my pads over in junior with, with a, with a car just to try and soften them up a little bit. <laughs> Come on. Oh, no, we did. I think we took old pizza boxes, put them down, put the pads down, put pizza boxes on top of the pads, and then ran them over with, with a car uh, just to try and work them in and soften them up a little bit. That's fantastic. <laughs> There's been a, a long history of um, challenges at times between athletes and the media. You were an athlete. You played pro. Now you're in the media. How do you feel being on that side of it and what does it do to the perspective maybe you used to have? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's when I played, I mean, I was, you know, I being in the media was probably the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing after, you know, talking to people. I was always kind of a quieter guy. I didn't really, you know, have a whole lot to say. So, um, you know, whenever asked, I, I was to me, coming from a small town. I mean, it was always kind of exciting to be talked to by the media and, you know, get that opportunity to, to put yourself out there. So I, I, I personally enjoyed it a lot. Um, I can't imagine though, you know, in today's era with cell phones and, you know, nothing's private, everything's out there. Right. So um, it, it's certainly a different world and, you know, how that ties in with media. I mean, 
you know, I, I can see where, you know, things have changed that way where, you know, as a, as the media, you know, if, if you catch wind of something that's gone on that somebody's recorded, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, it gets out there and it's, it's the media's job to, to cover that stuff. So I can see how maybe, you know, things may have soured a little bit in, in the mind of some people, but um, I think for the most part, uh, at least in my dealings with Sarnia, they've always been great to, to include us, uh, you know, myself and, and, and Lee and, um, you know, we're always part of things and, and they, uh, you know, they've been great with us and the players, I'm sure you guys can attest to, you know, for the most part are, are great to, to want to be interviewed. And, um, you know, it's a learning process for them too. It's funny interviewing the young kids that are just coming into the league. You know, you're lucky to get 10 words out of them, but, uh, you know, they, the more you do with them, the, the, the older they get, the better they get at, uh, at, at doing interviews and that sort of thing too. In talking about that media, now a, an assistant coach with Montreal, but Trevor Litowski, former teammate of yours in multiple organizations and then having to cover him in this league. What was it like covering a former teammate as a coach in this league? To me, that's always a little awkward. Um, you know, not awkward. They, they've always been great. I mean, Trevor's stand-up guys, you know, phenomenal human being. So, um, you know, he never, he never thought anything of it. Um, for me, you know, being thrown into it, coming out of it, it was the first little while was, was definitely awkward, you know, trying to interview somebody being on that other side that definitely took some getting used to, um, you know, even today, you know, I think the coaches, you know, especially when you're asking the same coach or coaches every day for an interview before the game, that sort of thing. Um, being, having been on the other side of it too, you know, you know, it's not like they're getting excited to come talk to you, but they, they know it's part of the gig too. And um, you know, they, our coaching staff anyways, they're, they're great as far as, you know, being available and, and kind of going through the motions with you and, and, you know, giving you what you need for the few minutes. And um, it's probably my least favorite thing to do, you know, on the media side is, is to interview these guys knowing that, you know, they, they don't mind doing it, but at the same time, it's, you know, you're kind of regurgitating a lot of the same stuff each and every night, kind of talking about the same things. And, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's all for, for the listeners and, and for the people that's all part of the, part of the gig. All right. Before Chris gets to his inevitable, just one more, just one more. I want to stay with, <laughs> with this side for just a moment longer because I, I kind of geek out on radio and, and media. And the guy that you're working with has a has a pretty interesting history in this league. Rogers TV, London, North Bay, when it was the Centennials, Saginaw. Now here in Sarnia with you, of course, Lee Cunningham, who needs his own podcast at some point. We'll have to bring him on. But come on. What's it like oh. working with a guy like Lee? He should have his own reality TV show. <laughs> yes, he should. We, we've said that a number of times, uh, the coaching <laughs> staff, and he's he's one of a kind. He really is. Uh, he's a hockey encyclopedia. I mean, he can tell you, you know, who scored a goal in 1982 in the second round of the OHL playoffs. And I mean, he's just he's phenomenal, and uh, he's a lot of fun to work with. And every day is exciting. And um, he, he's a true professional, you know, I come to the rink and, you know, I'll look over the stats. I'll, I'll look at different things, maybe online, a little thing here and there, but I mean, he gets up every day and, and goes through the lineup. He doesn't do anything electronically either. It's all papers. He prints stuff off. He goes through the lineups. I mean, he, he's to, to do it for as long as he's done it and to still kind of put that effort in. Uh, he's just a true professional and he's, he's a lot of fun to work with. He makes it easy and, and fun. Yeah. I do have a, a last question as I normally do. First off, it's a double, it's a double uh, barrel question. So I apologize for that. But first yeah. off, do you ever brag to your kids that you were drafted ahead of Pavel Datsuk? 
And <laughs> and if you don't, that, that, you should. They, no, it's never happened. No. Okay. Uh, maybe you should start. And two, and two uh, over that long career you had, you mentioned practicing with Gretzky and your time in the National League. I'm just curious, is there a player that you were on the ice with at any in any organization or in any league where you looked and you thought, holy cow, that player is unbelievable? Oh, never been asked that one before. Huh. No, you know what? I mean, the short answer is I've never really thought about it that way. I mean, I've, I've played with a lot of, a lot of really good guys. Um, the closest I can think of, again, bringing it back to Detroit, it was that same era where Brett Hall was there. I like Hasrick was there. Um, they were just absolutely stacked. Right. And I'll never forget sitting, sitting on the bench for that game, looking out and, you know, their one line that they had out on the ice was almost double our salary of our entire team. Like they were just, they were, it was, it was crazy. Uh, Iserman, Hall, uh, Hasek, uh, who else is there? I mean, it was, yeah. Fedorov. Yeah. Yeah, Fedorov. yeah. Yeah. Go on and on. Right. Like it was, uh, that, and, and watching those games, you know, I think when you're on the ice, at least for me, guys I played with, um, whether you got used to seeing it, I don't know, but I mean, you knew who the better guys in the team were. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, I mean, you're just trying to work on your own game as much as possible. Right. So you're more focused on that. So, um, yeah, I'd have to think on that one as far as playing with, with people. I, you know, I played with a lot of good guys. You talk about, I talked about Danny Briere. He was, you know, the skill level there was just crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, Phoenix, we had, uh, uh, Keith Kachuk was there. Ronick was there. So a lot of, a lot of pr- big personalities on that team. So, um, Teppo Newman was there. He was, he was pretty fun to watch defensively, like just some of the things quietly, you know, that, that he would do. Um, and maybe I noticed more of kind of what the defense were doing being a goalie kind of, watch them a little bit clo- more closely than, than I did the forwards. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I got yeah. a great way to wrap this up. You talked about throwing pillows. I got a email back from Frank Ivankovic. Oh, perfect. Yeah. He said, <laughs> dude, I totally remember him. I was in the corner causing shit and he came down the ice. I think if I remember, I fell on top of him and then I got hit with a stiff drink in the face. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I hit him with too many. Uh... <laughs> I remember the guys bugging me teasing me that I was throwing pillows out there, but uh, I thought I was on top of the world skating back to the bench. The guys were all going crazy and it wasn't much of a fight. I don't think remembering it, but uh, yeah, I think he did fall on me in the end. So <laughs> that's, that's funny. That's hilarious. Here, here's a note for, um, for version two of when we, when we bring you back for Patty D the sequel, yeah. it's going to be, you're damn right. I was drafted before Datsuk. And by the <laughs> way, my fight was like this. It was at center ice, you know, haymakers. Uh, That's we'll just embellish things a little bit. Cause stories are much better when they're inaccurate and false. I've actually got one more quick one uh, with, with a Kitchener flair to it. I forgot about this one. Uh, Sarnia arena. Uh, Belitsky was the goalie. Um, so you, I'm almost six foot four. He, he wasn't the tallest goalie in the league. He was a little guy, right? But he was, uh, and I know, I've, I know Dave since then, he was, uh, you know, a great guy. And when he was playing, he was a feisty, he was a feisty little goalie. He got into a lot of, 
you know, different things and he wouldn't, wouldn't take anything after the whistle. So we would bicker back and forth a lot of the time. And I remember the one day in Sarnarina again, playing up to the crowd, I skated to the blue line after one of these little things. And I got down on both knees and called him on for my knees, kind of playing with the, <laughs> the crowd just went nuts. We never ended up meeting up, but uh, yeah, that was, I remember that one. That was a lot of fun. As a fellow short guy, I can respect a joke like that. Well done. Well done. <laughs> but playing at Sarni Arena was, was just a riot. I mean, you talk about atmospheres. There was no other rink, and I don't think there has been any other rinks, you know, as far as OHL play goes, that were that was quite like that. I mean, I go back to that rink. My kid plays in that rink now, and I can't I can't even believe that we used to play games in that rink. It was it was crazy. The, just the small ice and I mean there was no netting around the glass like you know the pucks flying all over the place and the, the glass was lower back then too I mean it was people hanging out hanging up on the rafters during those games it was uh it was a lot of fun I can't it would have been fun coming back to that rink as an opposing team to see what it was like so I'm sure it was intimidating for a lot of those teams that's great Patty thanks a lot for coming on with us today this was a uh, great and as far as you mentioned I'm sure we'll get you back for version two down the road All right. Appreciate it, guys. A lot of fun. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.